This podcast is developed by BridgeBio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions don't necessarily reflect the views and policy of BridgeBio Pharma. Now, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by BridgeBio, a biotech company that focuses on developing treatments for rare diseases. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Mandy Rorick, and I'm here today with my colleague, David Rintel, Head of Patient Advocacy at BridgeBio. Hi, David, and welcome. Hi, Mandy. Great to see you. Good to see you, too. David is going to talk with Dan, who lives with limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i, or LGMD2i. It's a condition that's characterized by weakening of the muscles around the shoulders and the hips. Before we talk with Dan, David's going to speak with Divya to give us a little bit more information about LGMD2i. Welcome, Divya Reddy, Medical Director of the Bridge Bio Program in LGMD2i. Thanks, David, for having me here. Divya? How can you explain to us simply what muscular dystrophy is? So muscular dystrophy, dys means difficult or bad, and trophy means growth or nourishment. So muscular dystrophy basically means the muscle is appearing poorly nourished because of the degeneration, which in turn leads to weakness. If you look at muscular dystrophies, it refers to a group of genetic diseases that causes progressive weakness and loss of muscle mass. So these disorders can vary and they can affect your daily activities like standing, walking, getting out of a chair, moving your arms, or even climbing upstairs. Many people have heard of muscular dystrophy for a few reasons. One is the Duchenne muscular dystrophy community has been really very, very active in advocating for children, boys with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And long ago, Jerry Lewis, a comedian, used to do telethons to raise money for muscular dystrophy. So it's kind of more known than most rare conditions. But how is limb girdle muscular dystrophy different than other muscular dystrophies? You hit it kind of on the spot. Duchenne muscular dystrophy is very well known, um, in particular for limb girdle muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. I think the main difference is how it's genetically acquired and who it affects. For limb girdle muscular dystrophy, it affects both male and female. It is an autosomal recessive disease, but also can be acquired by autosomal dominant. That means that you must inherit two copies of a mutated gene. So one from each parent and that's how you'll inherit the disease. And then with autosomal dominant, it's just one copy of the gene from one of the parents. I see. That's very helpful. Limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i, I think that you said that it's in general autosomal recessive, meaning that you need one copy from each parent, but sometimes it is inherited in a dominant fashion, meaning that only one parent needs to carry that gene that doesn't operate correctly. And how do people first notice that they have developed LGMD2I? Yeah, so there are a wide variety of muscular dystrophies, um, each caused by a different gene mutation. So one of the subgroups of muscular dystrophies is LGMD. To date, there are over 30 subtypes of LGMD, and it's considered a rare disease as a group. And each subtype of LGMD is even more rare. So really what the importance of 2i is, is to distinguish LGMD2i from other forms of both limb girdle muscular dystrophy and 
presumably from other muscular dystrophies. Yeah, that is correct. One thing that I wanted to mention is LGMD is one of the most common mutations seen in Northern Europe, UK, and North America. It's also suggestive that there's some connection with people who have Viking family heritage. European countries like Denmark, Norway, Sweden, where you see a higher population. You're saying that there's something about genes that were carried way back that have continued through the generations. It's more likely that people whose heritage goes back to the Vikings may be carriers. Is that correct? That is 100% correct. That's uh, very interesting. And, you know, the Vikings lived long ago, but their genes persist. And I was lucky enough um, in the past one month, I think I told you this, David, that I've been traveling some of these countries with these Viking inheritance. Well, uh, did they sign you up to uh, row on one of their boats endlessly uh, while you were there? (laughs) No, unfortunately not. I think that's probably lucky for you. Amy, don't include that. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. So Divya, through your travels, what did you notice was the effect on families of those living with LGMD2I? Like any family, I think everyone goes in and supports that person and they want to figure out what's going on and, you know, if there's a treatment. I think that's the first thing is, is there a treatment? Can I get, can I fix this? So I think that's the biggest kind of first hurdle for families is trying to get as much information as they can and I think, you know, there's differences between countries and certain locations, but, you know, I think as a whole, the LGMD community is very strong. They're very vocal and, you know, there's a lot of information out there. And that is so important for the families. So thank you, Divya. This background is really going to be helpful to us as we listen to Dan. Thanks, David, for having me. very pleased to introduce Dan, who's joining us from Florida. Dan is a person living with LGMD2I, or limb girdle muscular dystrophy, type 2I. Dan, welcome to On Rare. Well, thank you, David. It's nice to be here. So if we could, let's go back to wherever your experience with LGMD2I begins. Like, what do you recall is the first thing that you noticed? Well, you know, growing up in Colorado, uh, my family would often go hiking up in the mountains. And one of the, the first memories that I had of, of having some muscle difficulty was when we were hiking, my legs would cramp up and I would have to stop and rest very often, which was very uh, unlike my older brothers that obviously were very eager to get to wherever we were going. Yeah. And around how old do you think you were? I was about six or seven at that time. Wow. And very different than your brothers. And what did you think was going on? And what did your parents think? Well, you know, at the time for, for many, many years, uh, you know, I just thought I was out of shape, that I wasn't good at sports, that physical activity was not my strong suit, which was a little odd because one of my older brothers, Ron, was uh, very athletic and, uh, you know, excelled at sports and whatnot. And, you know, I just, I, I didn't. I tried playing football, uh, you know, in my, my teen years and just never had that explosive yeah. speed that the other kids had. I was always, you know, a few steps behind. So it sounds like you noticed that you were different than other kids and from your brothers, but you kind of just thought you weren't athletic. In other words, nobody took much notice to get you a medical workup. 
Correct. Correct. Very much so. It, it wasn't until uh, later on in life I had uh, gone through a, a, a cancer diagnosis. I had uh, been given a diagnosis of malignant melanoma. Fortunately, they found that oh. very early and it didn't turn out to be a, as big a thing as muscular dystrophy was. But it was in one of those follow-up appointments. The doctor asked me, you know, how am I doing? And I, I, I had to say, you know, I'm having difficulty going upstairs. I'm having difficulty getting out of chairs. Oh, wow. And, and that was the first medical red flag and ultimately led to diagnosis. And around how old were you then, Dan? I was 38 at that time. Oh, wow. So you're about 38. Uh, just sorry to hear if you didn't already have enough on your hands with LGMD2I. A cancer diagnosis and melanoma is very frightening and challenging. Well, it, it was. Um, fortunately, they found it very early. I'm just looking at it in the rearview mirror at this point. Yeah, yeah. That period of time from, you know, when I was a young kid and having difficulty, you know, hiking and keeping up with my brothers and yeah. in high school, you yeah. know, I tried to play sports. I tried to play football and never quite excelled the way the other kids did, mm -hmm. you know, out, out of high school and into my uh, you know first year of college, just having difficulty even running, just just simply moving quickly. That time in my, my, you know, throughout my early 20s, I bought a mountain bike, you know, and I thought I'm just out of shape. You know, I need to really get out and, you know, ride this bike and get into the gym and work out. And, you know, the little did I know that I was actually causing harm to myself. Activity is good, but too much of it can, can be very harmful. You know, getting into the gym and, you know, really trying to work out, I, I really kind of began to... There, there, there was some self-loathing there. You know, it's like, why, why can't I, you know, I'm in my early 20s. Why can't I run? You know, why is this so difficult? Why can't I ride my bike uphill like other people? You know, like I say, the period of time where I just didn't know exactly what was going on, but I didn't even really think that, you know, muscular dystrophy was a thing. I wonder what you were thinking and feeling then. And, you know, when I finally uh, arrived at a diagnosis, it was actually quite a relief. It's like, oh, that's why I can't ride the bike uphill. That, that's why I have difficulty, you know, running the way that other people can. It sounds like you kind of took it out on yourself a little bit, at least before you understood that this was a medical condition. Yeah, I, I did. I really kind of took it personally. It, you know, it's a very puzzling situation to be in. Um, it really kind of made me think about it. You know, it's interesting. It, it's an example of how, in some ways, you adapted to having less strength or endurance, but then you began to realize, oh, this really, it's not good enough. I'm not good enough. And as you say, you took it very personally. And uh, that must have been a very difficult period for you. So, Well, it, it was a very difficult period. Yeah. What was the first step that you took to find out what was going on with you? Um, at the time, I, I was working at a two-story place, and very often I'd have to, you know, run upstairs to consult with my boss about something. And I'll tell you, that flight of stairs just became my enemy. You know, when I first started working there, you know, I could go up there and I never even thought about it. But over the course of four years that I worked in that facility, the, those stairs got harder and harder. And it was during one of these follow-up appointments uh, with my doctor that I told him, you know, I'm just having trouble going upstairs. Getting up out of a chair is difficult. And it was at that point that she then did uh, blood work and found that my CK was a lot higher than it should have been, um, which then led to a neurologist. Dan, I'm, I, I'm not sure what word to use. I'm, I'm a little bit shocked in that 10, 15 years later, you still didn't know the cause of your different physical ability 
that is a long time to be living with that. You know, that, that, that was a very difficult time in my life in, in, you know, coming to grips with this weakness and kind of the, this uh, unknown, uh, the unknown uh, aspects of it. You mentioned to test a CK test, and I'm sorry that um, for being ignorant, but uh, what is a CK test? What does it measure? Well, CK stands for creatine kinase. Uh-huh. And that's an enzyme that's produced in the muscle. And uh, when, when muscle breaks down is when this enzyme is released. You know, if a healthy person goes to the gym and works out really hard and really, you know, exercises their muscles, their CK might jump up to, you know, 100 or something like that. And then it goes back down. Mine, mine was clocking in at 5,600. Oh my goodness. Which, you know, was, was the first red flag that there was some, you know, major muscle problems going on. Yeah, that is... That is quite a red flag to have uh, to have it be so high. The uh, my primary care doctor at the time she thought was that it could be a condition called polymyositis, which is an inflammatory myopathy, which then sent me to uh, my first neurologist. It's a very slow, slow diagnostic process. It took nine months before I could finally get an appointment with a neurologist, still not knowing what's going on. You know, uh, possibly this diagnosis of polymyositis. Mm-hmm. Met with him. He then uh, had me do an EMG test, which is an electromyography test, which clearly showed that I had a condition called myotonia, which is where the the muscle contracts and then has difficulty releasing. So uh, again, I'm going to have to say I'm shocked that it took nine months to get a, an appointment with a neurologist. That just, I just can't imagine. You know, you have this really high value of CK, worrisome. I'm I'm sorry to hear that you went through that long period of time having to wait without knowing what really was causing this. And, you know, you also had another possible diagnosis. So I'm glad that you did see the neurologist who did the EMG test. And so what did that result tell the neurologist and tell you? Well, it his uh, initial thought was that I had a condition called Thompson's disease, which is something I'd never heard of. He, he dug out a textbook in his office and, and looked up Thompson's disease. Um, he referred me then at that point to another neurologist down at the University of Colorado. I met with him and he reviewed all of the you know, files at that point. And for the first time, I had heard the word muscular dystrophy used. He then ordered a muscle biopsy, took a small section out of my bicep. And when they got it under the microscope, they were able to tell me that indeed I had muscular dystrophy. He didn't know what specific type of muscular dystrophy. Hmm. At that time, it was such a relief. You know, it explained so much of me growing up, of why my legs were cramped up when we would hike, you know, why I couldn't play football the way other kids did, why I couldn't ride a bike the way other people did. It was a horrible diagnosis, but it was a tremendous relief. Wow. Yeah. It just seems like it it has two parts. One is you find out you have muscular dystrophy, which can be a frightening condition. And, you know, certain forms of muscular dystrophy cause early death in boys. And we know about that. So you hear you have a serious condition, but at least you finally have an explanation for all of those years. And it turns out it wasn't, wasn't you, it wasn't something personal. It was something medical. What else went through your mind when you heard this? There was there was relief, but there was also tremendous fear. You know, what is muscular dystrophy? I mean, you know, we all grew up watching the Jerry Lewis telethon, and you know, I certainly was not a young boy in a, in a wheelchair. It was a time where I really kind of went out and learned. Yeah. There were some genetic tests done. You know, they ruled out polymyositis. 
you know, but it was scary. What does this mean? The doctor told me that, you know, you're, you're living with muscular dystrophy. It's a progressive disease. It's going to get worse and worse over time. You'll likely be in a wheelchair in five to 10 years, and it may affect your, your heart and lungs and, and be the cause of your premature death. Mm. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's a very scary thing to hear. Very scary. Very, it, uh, very dire. So you, you have the relief of knowing finally what caused your problems. But then he says that, you know, five or 10 years, you'll be in a wheelchair and it's going to cause your death. That is, the relief must have been short lived. That's all I can say is that's. Well, it's it, it certainly, uh, you know, is life changing to hear that kind of news. Yeah. Um, How many years ago was that? Uh, almost 20 years ago. I'm coming up on my, my 20 year anniversary of a diagnosis. Yeah. It was at the very beginning of 2004. How much of that prediction has come true? You're, I could tell that you're still alive because we're talking to each other right now, but. Well, I, I guess I'm very much alive. <laughs> you know, here we are, you know, close to 20 years later. I'm, I'm not yet in a wheelchair. I do use a scooter when I'm outside the home. Uh, I walk, you know, here at home where I'm very familiar with the surroundings and everything's flat and level. You know, yeah. when I get outside, outside the home, the fear of falling becomes very, very real. You know, it doesn't take much for, for me to simply drag a toe and down I go and then I can't get up and then, you know, everybody has a bad Can you day. talk more about that? So, um, so around the house, you don't use a wheelchair and, but when you need to go longer distances, you're using an, an electric scooter. And a lot of that is about your fear of falling or your tendency to fall. And catching a toe sounds like, you know, what they sometimes call foot drop, where you're, the front of your foot doesn't go up enough. Is that what happens? Yeah, precisely. That, that, that's exactly what it is. It, it's a common condition with muscular dystrophy patients, a foot drop. You know, if there's even just a, a slight irregularity in the sidewalk yeah. or pavement or something, yeah. it's enough. And then you, your, your center of gravity gets out in front of you oh, and, gosh. and down you go. So you've had some falls. I, I have had some falls. Fortunately, I've not broken any bones, but uh, certainly had my, my share of scrapes and bruises and abrasions. Yeah. Um, it seems that some of the, my, my worst falls have occurred in airports while I've been traveling. I had one fall where I was getting onto a train and of course, you know, in a very crowded uh, commuter situation, you know, I was the last person on the train thinking I could get on. And as oh. the door of the train was closing, it knocked me down. And I found myself on the floor of the train. Oh my God. Wow. Fortunately, there were some big guys that were able to, to get me up and standing real quick. Another time I was not so fortunate. Uh, I, I got to my gate, you know, early and was waiting. This was still when I, I was walking through airports. And of course, at the last minute, there's a gate change. And then there's this mad dash of, of oh travelers my. trying to get down to the, the new gate. And, uh, you know, I very carefully got onto the moving sidewalk and I was, you know, to the side, allowing everybody to move by me. There was a, a large guy and I, I didn't see him coming. What would be just incidental contact to anybody else was enough to, to send me down onto the, oh. onto the moving sidewalk. And, uh, unfortunately it, it cut my face open oh. and, you know, there was, it was quite, I, quite messy I, and dramatic. Really sorry to hear that. I could just see that. And people in airports just don't look out for other 
other folks. That's something that I've noticed. Everybody's focused on getting to where they're going and not on the other person. And they stop abruptly, they move into your path. And um, so it just compounds the difficulty that you are having. So. Well, I, I, I had a cane with me. I, I find that you know, if you have a cane in your hand, it's kind of a a signal to other people that you've got some difficulties and, you know, they should give you a little wider berth. You know, unfortunately, just the, you know, the chaos of travel, everybody's trying to get where they're going as quickly as possible and maybe not necessarily seeing those signals. Well, I'm glad you're using a scooter now and I hope in the airports, the airlines are helping you if they change the gate or whatever. So you're not having to fight the crowds. Well, traveling certainly is a challenge. Two months ago, I, I traveled out to Iowa for the Dystroglycanopathy Conference, and it was the first time that I've traveled with my scooter. And uh, it certainly was challenging, but it was nice. I was able to drive my scooter right to the, the door of the plane, was able to then get off the scooter and walk in and sit down, and then they, they moved my scooter down into the, the cargo hold. When it comes time to get off the plane, though, it's a little bit different. This was the first time I had traveled in three years. The minute I sat down in that seat, I immediately realized I'm, I'm not getting up out of this seat on my own for, for anything. And, you know, of course, you start thinking, I mean, well, you know, what if there's an emergency? I mean, you know, and, and I'm in the aisle seat and I've got two people to the right of me that they need to get out. And I, I wouldn't want to, to, to be in their way. But the, fortunately, the airline was very good. They, they got my scooter there in one piece. You know, we, we all hear stories of wheelchairs and scooters being damaged by airlines, but uh, uh, yeah. mine was, was there waiting for me when I got to Iowa, um, and uh, it, it, it worked out well. How did you eventually get out of your seat, Dan? I have this image in my mind that you're stuck in your seat. Everybody gets off the plane and there you are. So, Well, they, that, that's exactly what happened. I, I, everybody got off the plane and I sat there for about 20 minutes, um, you know, overhearing the gossip of the flight crew. And finally, some two large baggage handlers, I guess that's who they assigned to, you know, I, I felt like human cargo and they have a, a center wheelchair that'll fit in the aisle. And then, you know, these two big guys wheeled me out to my scooter that was waiting for me outside the door of the plane. You know, there's so much that we take for granted, like being able to get out of a seat. You, you have to think ahead, you know, if for any reason I had to get up and use the restroom, that would have been very, very challenging experience. And, you know, one thing I've learned uh, over the years is to simply not drink water the day before. You you, you literally just have to, to think ahead and, you know, deny yourself water the day before so that you don't have to get up and use yeah, the restroom. I'm sure you land up being dehydrated and, and your muscles need water. Everybody's, everyone needs water. So, wow, it really makes travel complicated. I happened to be in a, the first clinical trial for LGMD2I. I ended up making 29 trips from Denver to Baltimore in a 36-month period. And this was from 2015 to 2018 when I was much more mobile. I was able at that time to, to walk through airports and everything. It was at that time that I really kind of had it all down. You know, you quit drinking water the day before. Oh, my God. You know, you get there. And, of course, you have to, you know, rehydrate yourself because the next morning they, they want to draw blood. And, you know, if you're dehydrated, they, they can't draw the blood. So it was at that time that I really kind of got the traveling down. Um, but as my condition progressed, it just was getting harder and harder. Yeah. Uh, Dan, um, how else is LGMD2I, in addition to travel, affecting your life today? Well, 
it's a progressive condition. Things continue to get get harder and harder. I mentioned that I had traveled to Iowa a couple months ago. You know, not only was getting there challenging and whatnot, but the accessibility of the hotel. Even though I had an accessible room, is kind of strange to say, but the mattress was so soft that I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I mean, it's something I do every morning and I'm very familiar with my environment here at home. But in this foreign environment of the hotel room, with this very soft mattress, I couldn't push up to get up out of bed. And that first morning there, I, I'm not exaggerating, it took me an hour to just get out of bed. You know, I, I, I was questioning whether or not, you know, at what point do I call 911? You know, I mean, but you know, how embarrassing is that? You know, they get a report of a man that can't get out of bed. I mean, you know, that's horribly embarrassing. But uh, fortunately, uh, the conference there were, you know, nothing but people with two eyes. So I was able to talk to a friend of mine's husband and he was nice enough to come help me get out of bed the next few mornings. So it it, it worked out. You know, after the the four days of traveling, um, I got home, I couldn't get out of my car. Uh, uh. My muscles were so weak. I I literally couldn't get out of my car. It it was shocking. It kind of really makes you think about what's in store down the road. You go through these experiences and you wear your body out so much it, it kind of gives you a little uh, clue as to to what's going to be coming next, and and that that was difficult for me in thinking that what happens you know when I can no longer get out of my car. My car currently is a tremendous source of independence. I have a lift in there where I can bring my scooter with me, and you know it allows me to I've gone all over the country. In it. Yeah, that is you're facing the potential loss of independence and traveling. It gives you a bit of a taste of that whether it be trouble getting out of bed or, you know, getting out of your car because you're exhausted and you could just kind of see what, what the future might bring. And that's, it's frightening. It is frightening, but one of the fortunate things about attending the conference in Iowa is there's so many people there with 2i, people that are further progressed that you can talk to them, you can see the challenges and talk to them about how they've overcome them. There's going to come a day where, okay, I can no longer use the scooter. I'm going to have to get a different car that's that's wheelchair accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll overcome that that difficulty. I just have to adapt. As as with other people living with rare conditions, often the best source of knowledge, experience, are other people living with the same condition. So it's interesting. I hear that a lot talking to people living with rare conditions, that when something happens, they land up calling another person living in that condition or another family so they can get the get the information about how do you deal with this situation you know being able to draw upon the knowledge and experience of people that have, have faced these challenges uh before me um it, it's very reassuring you know these people have, have overcome them and and i will too that's, that's got to be a difficult road to manage well, it is difficult. And the, the, the thing that makes it so difficult is that every time you think that you've adjusted to this new level of progression, things get worse. You know, suddenly you get to the point where, oh, now I can't get out of my car. One way or another, you have to overcome it. You have to adapt and move on. I, th- I think that's a, a slogan from the military, adapt and overcome or something to that nature. Yeah, I think it's the Marines, improvise, adapt and overcome. Great motto for living with a condition like 2i. I just 
think what you said about you adapt to how things are today, but things could change tomorrow and then you have to adapt all over again. Well, that, that's very true. I'm, I, I think I'm fiercely independent. And, you know, at some point I'm going to have to look outside for extra help. I'm single. I live by myself. Fortunately, yeah, I, I yeah. do have a lift here in my home so that if I do fall, I can get to it and can get up off the floor without having to, to call the fire department. But, you know, bringing in a caregiver mm. is something that I'm, I'm going to have to start thinking about, you know, just having somebody come in to do some meal prep. You know, I love to cook. I love to eat. But uh, cleaning up the yeah. kitchen is is getting to be a, a sore spot. But, you know, getting that, that outside help... Mm-hmm. I, I think is very important that, uh, you know, again, you know, we have to, to learn from the people that have gone before us. It gets to a point where I can't do it all on my own, even though I yeah. want to. Yeah. Dan, do you experience pain from the LGMD2I? Yeah, I, I've always got some degree of pain. In fact, my, my back was really hurting me just, just a few days ago. You know, the muscles are weak and for whatever reason, it's pinching on a nerve. You know, pain is something that uh, people with LGMD2I uh, in particular experience a, a great deal. Other people, not too much. Um, my, my pain kind of comes and goes. Uh, there are times that it can be very bad. But yeah, I, I, I've got pain on some oh, level yeah. all the time. So I guess... Uh... That brings us kind of up to the present. What are your thoughts about the future? Well, you know, the future can be very scary. You know, the idea of losing my independence is is scary. The idea of what happens, you know, when I I can't get out of bed, although they they do have equipment and, and things that can help with that. But the future is scary. Yeah. The idea of not being able to get out of bed, that is frightening. And equipment or no equipment it just means less independence and more counting on someone else to help you. I, I try to remain hopeful. Um, you know, even though the prognosis of mu- muscular dystrophy is scary to live with, it certainly is, gives me quite a bit of hope, you know, to think that there might be something out there that could even just simply level off the progression. You know, that, that would be a real win for me to just simply stay where I'm at right now. That That's a future I can certainly accept and live with. So there's really a need for treatment or better treatment. And even if a treatment is able to help you stabilize and not continue to decline in your functioning, that would be a big win for you. So that's important to remember. Yeah. I think just being able to stabilize the progression would be a a real win. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dan. You've really taught us so much about your experience with LGMD2I, the and the very long wait to get a diagnosis and then the many adaptations you've made successfully to continue living with LGMD2I and adapting to it. Any last thoughts that you would like people to know about? Well, you know, I guess it's kind of true of living with any kind of, uh, you know, chronic condition or a, a progressive condition, but well, look for the blessings. There are blessings that come along with it. They're very often difficult to see. Um, they're very obscure, but uh, just simply being here and, and, and chatting with you today, David, I consider a blessing. It's one of the things that I've, I've learned going down this road is to stop oh, and smell the roses. I'm so pleased that you can also find the positives in life and that despite the limitations imposed on your life, you can still recognize that just being alive on earth is a blessing and connections with other people are a blessing. And I, I hope that that continues for you. You've certainly helped us understand much more about LGMD2I. We're very grateful to you for talking with us on, on this podcast. Well, thank you, David. It, it means a lot. And I'm, I'm glad that I was able to be here today. 
David, thank you for this incredible conversation. I enjoyed hearing how despite all of these hardships as a young person, struggling to keep up, feeling inadequate, and then seeking out a diagnosis and that taking many, many years to beginning to live with this disease that's slowly taking parts of his life away from him, but yet he's still able to adapt and smell the roses Well, Mandy, you know, I I think it's true for everyone we interview that everyone has been inspiring, but I was particularly inspired by Dan. I think, as you point out, that despite all of his struggles, he has maintained, you know, a sense of appreciation for life, an incredible amount of patience. I think he is living the adapt and overcome motto that he was discussing. Just thinking about the 20 minutes he was waiting on the plane, and I don't like the word acceptance. I think we shouldn't have to accept everything, although there's a lot that we have no choice about. You know, he understood that it would take time to get his scooter out of the baggage. Even his description of being pushed down in the airport by someone He seemed to somehow manage to put that into context, understanding that people are not careful. And, you know, I'm not that accepting. I'm not that patient. So uh, I will think of him the next time someone pushes me or is rude to me in an airport. Okay, well, they're just not looking out for the other person. So I was inspired by him. I also want to say I feel very frustrated at how long it took for him to get a diagnosis. And, you know, we talk about the diagnostic odyssey, and I think the average time to diagnosis for rare diseases is like eight years, which is really completely unacceptable. But his, it took so much longer. It took another diagnosis of cancer before anyone really listened to him and believed him that he was having physical difficulties. And no one should have to wait that long. That's much more profound waiting than waiting for being helped off an airplane. So... And then to hear Dan say that it was helpful to get the diagnosis that answered the questions and, again, sort of sense that it helped him adapt and overcome to know what was causing his symptoms. Yeah. And then to get into a neurologist was like nearly a year. So, Mandy, you and I both worked with people with multiple sclerosis for a long time. And something that Dan talked about people with MS also experienced, which is you spend a lot of time adapting to your current circumstances. And then the circumstances change. Yeah. They're not just adapting for the day or the month. They're adapting minute to minute because the circumstances are changing. It reflects what Dan said, that simply slowing down or pausing this progression would be very meaningful to him and his quality of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Dan and David, for the conversation. Thank you, Divya, for helping us to better understand LGMD2I. A special thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks. To learn more, visit the Speak Foundation, Cure LGMD2I Foundation, and the LGMD Awareness Foundation. To get in touch with us, email us anytime at onrare at bridgebio.com. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to joining us for our next conversation on Rare. Thank you.